Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Hey, like Ryan said, uh, we have a special guest speaker tonight. Ben uh, is the founding pastor of Awaken Church in Round Rock, Texas, right outside of Austin. He's a Springfield native and was once upon a time on staff at High Street. Would you join me in welcoming Ben to speak tonight? Man, I am so excited to be here with you guys tonight. And I just got to know, do you guys love Jesus? No, 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 you can do better than that. Do you love Jesus? All right, I thought I was coming to High Street Young Adults. I, I'm so excited to be here, and I believe this, that God has put a word on my heart for somebody here. Uh, in fact, uh, when Jared and Coco and Logan asked me, they said, hey, Ben, would you come out here? Would you speak a word to us? I asked them, I said, what do, you want me to, what do you want me to talk on? They said, oh, we don't know. You pick something. Which, of course, is like the worst thing ever to say to a pastor because it's like, man, just give me a passage. Give me something to preach on. And so, of course, leading all the way up to literally this morning, I've just been praying, asking God, God, what do you want me to say to, to your people? What do you want me to say to this incredible group of people here tonight? And um, I believe this is for somebody in here tonight. I'm going to try to not get emotional. But God woke me up this morning at 2.30 a.m. And I don't know your name, but you're here tonight. And I've been praying for you. That I believe this, that God has a word for you. That he wants to call you a son and a daughter tonight. I've been up praying for you. And I don't know your name. But I'm excited to meet you tonight as he draws you into the family of God. So here today, as we get prepared to to hear this word, this is what I need from you, okay? So I come from Austin, Texas, the great country of Texas. That's right, my Texas natives. Come on, y'all. There we are. And so I come from a very diverse church, okay? And so I'm used to people speaking back to me, okay? So if you like what you're hearing, holler back at me, okay? This message is going to go quicker and it's going to sound a whole lot better if you shout me down, all right? Is that something we can do tonight? All right, excellent. So if you got your Bible, let's go to Philippians chapter number two. And honestly, this is much less of a sermon. If you've ever heard me speak before, you know kind of my style This right here, what I'm going to give to you tonight, is much more of a life verse. This for me is what changed my entire life. As a 26-year-old captain in the army, running far from God, this verse radically transformed my life. And the idea I want to come around tonight is this, is that there is power in the way that we think. There is power in a mindset. And the example we're going to look at tonight is the example of Jesus. The title of my message, turn to your neighbor with some audacity and say, Jesus wasn't selfish. Say with a little bit of attitude, to the neighbor that you didn't choose, your second choice, say, I'm so sorry I chose you second. Say to them, Jesus wasn't selfish. Now that everyone's properly offended, let's go into Philippians 2. It says this, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Right off the bat, we are hit squarely in the jaw with a command that you and I cannot actually do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then these next set of verses here, from verse 6 all the way to verse 11, at this point in time would have been a hymn. Just 20 years after Jesus is risen from the dead, ascends into heaven, this would have been a hymn that they would have sung during that time as the local church. This would have been a hymn that Jews would have sung, people that would have, not, would have had a hard time believing that God would have put on flesh and bone. If you're here tonight and you're a skeptic, you've got some questions, don't worry, I was in the exact same spot that you're at at 26 years of age. This passage of text, just 20 years removed from Jesus ascending into heaven, is the hymn that the early church sang. In fact, this is more than likely the earliest hymn that we know of that the early church sang. We got to sing some incredible uh, worship songs tonight. This may be the very first worship song that the early church ever sang. Let's look at it, verses 6 through 11. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me tonight? Father, we ask for your presence to be here. Holy Spirit, would you have your way? I believe tonight more than ever that there are people that are here right now that need to know that you are a good God, that you are a good Father, that you do not abandon us, that no matter what trial we went through, that you were right there with us. And even though it was hard and it was difficult, even though that we may have been abused and maligned, you were there. Jesus, I pray tonight that you would speak to us. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. I, um, I have a confession to make. I am an addict. I'm an addict to Ben and Jerry's Tonight Dough ice cream. Anybody like the Tonight Dough ice cream? Come on, my people. Yes, there's my people. I don't know what it is about the Tonight Dough ice cream. I cannot get enough of this stuff. Like, I've told my wife time and time again, I'm like, baby, this is the month. This is the month. I'm going to lose 10 pounds. It's the month. And what happens is this. Inevitably, I'm out there, and I push my kids in the, in the grocery store, and you go buy that frozen food aisle, right? You know what I'm talking about now. You go buy the frozen food aisle, and it, I swear to you, it's like it's looking at me longingly. It's like, Ben, here I am. I'm the, I mean, look at him. Look at Jimmy Fallon. Just like, Ben, come here. This is for you. I can't help myself because I am an addict to the Tonight Dough ice cream. And this is what I found is that over time of eating pint after pint after pint is that not only has my addiction caught up with me, it's, it's turned into a disease. I now, yes, you can cry for me, I'm now lactose intolerant people. Yes, yes, I'm lactose intolerant because of the Tonight Dough. And the thing is, I can't help myself even now if we were to go out and Logan or, or Jared or Coco were to take me out and they'd say, Ben, what do you want to do? You know what I'm going to say? Let's go get some Andy's ice cream, y'all, because I can't help myself. 
But what happens is this, inevitably, I eat this ice cream. And you know, your stomach just gets messed up. Your boy is messed up for the rest of the evening into the morning. I'm grumbling, I'm stumbling, it's all over the place. And I know what's going to happen, yet I cannot help myself. I just can't stop choosing the tonight dough ice cream. And this is what I've learned about this. You're like, Ben, what are you talking about? Like, I thought we were talking about Jesus tonight. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Much like the tonight dough ice cream, you and I, we live our life in the same way. We live our life in the same way where there's things that we know that we know that we know are bad for us. We know that we're going to choose this, but we just can't help ourselves, can we? we? We just go right back to the old things. We pursue satisfaction. We pursue happiness. We pursue the appetites, don't we? And at the end of the day, we are left wanting. We're left in a spot where we're wondering, how did we get here? How did I end up in this place? You see, so often what we do is we look at the culture of the day. You say, Ben, if I could just be rich, then I would have everything that I need. I would be satisfied on the inside. If I could have fame, then I would be satisfied. If I could have the relationship that I've been praying for over and over, then I would be satisfied if I could just have that, but at the end of the day, what happens is this, we know that even when we get the thing that we want so badly, that many times we're left in that same predicament. Hurt, upset, lonely. I want you to see someone that you all know, someone that had all of this, and what a radical transformation has happened in his mindset when he took on the mind of Christ. Check this out on and so I really took a deep dive in my faith to be honest I just went deep into like I believed in Jesus but I never really like you know when it says following Jesus is actually turning away from sin mm. and so there's no what, what it talks about in the Bible it's like there's no obedience there's no faith without obedience so it's like I had had faith about like oh I believe Jesus died on the cross for me but I never really implemented it mm. into my life I never like was like I'm gonna be obedient. So when did you decide to actually move within the guidelines and how did you find yourself away from, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm gonna drink or do drugs or sleep around or what, all these other distractions. How did you get out of that world? What was the turning point for you? I think it was my perception of who Jesus really was, you know? Um, I'd had really bad examples of Christians in my life uh, who would say one thing and do another. So they were the, my direct example of who Jesus was. That's why you didn't take it seriously. I didn't take it as seriously because I didn't have good examples. Good role model. Did you hear what he said there? He said that when his perspective changed of who Jesus was, his life began to change. There was a dramatic shift when he recognized that not only did Jesus just die on the cross, but he changed my way of thinking. He changed the way that I naturally think. You see, what Paul begins tonight is he opens up in this incredible text. And it gives us a picture of not just what Jesus did, but it gives us a picture of who Jesus was. It gives us a picture into the mind of God. Think about that for a moment. You literally tonight, as we read that text, we got to see what God thought about. We got to see the way that God thinks. And Paul writes here, he says, this is a look into the mind, the motivation, and the mentality 
of Jesus. But Paul doesn't start there, does he? How does he start out this text in verse number three? He gives us an impossible task to live up to. Look at it with me. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How many know that that is an impossible statement? Like there are some of you out here right now that you've showed up to young adults and you're thinking, this is going to be a message about how to be better. This is going to be a message about rules to follow. This is going to be a message about how I need to try harder. And what I want to get out from the onset is this, is that when Paul writes this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, it is an impossible task on your own. You cannot live up to the standard of God. You will never live up to the standard of God. And so he writes this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, because this, friends, is our natural state. Think about it for a moment. I want you to remember the very last conversation that you had right outside of these doors before you came in. Where was your state of mind? I bet in the conversation you were probably thinking about a way that you could look pretty good in the conversation. Man, how do I do a quick humble brag about the last achievement that I had? Man, I want to let my, my, my people know about my boo thing that I'm now dating, right? Look who I got on my arm now. Come on, somebody. <laughs> we do it. It's our natural state. And Paul is audacious enough to say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In fact, the whole culture that we live in, the American dream, is selfish ambition or conceit. Literally, climb the ladder of success. Work your way to the top. Find yourself a good woman. Find yourself a good man. And then everything is going to be okay. Some of you are sitting here and you are being buried under the weight and the pressure of something that you've put on yourself. You said, by a certain age, I've got to be married. And there's some sort of pressure on you to live up to your own standard, your own selfish ambition. Some sort of American dream. This is the opposite of the very comparison culture in which we live. Now, it would be easy to rag on social media, but I'm going to do it anyway. I was reading the other day, and there's this thing now where in L.A., like social media influencers, they can rent out a space. I think we have a picture of it up here. They're renting out space that looks like a private jet so that they can take pictures of. If you see, there's a couch in the back of this picture. It's literally in some room somewhere. They take pictures of this and make it look like they're a success. They make it look like they're on a PJ going somewhere around the world when really they really just drove up to like something next to a 7-Eleven and like popped out. And what are they doing? They need the applause of people. They've got to have it. They crave it. But you and I are no different. Maybe ours is a little bit more subtle. Maybe it's a, a humble brag. Or maybe it's even the exact opposite of that. Maybe you're beating yourself down so much that you seem to be humble. What Paul says here is this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The bottom line is this, if you're taking notes tonight, is that statement is impossible unless the next verses that come follow. Because then he goes into verse number five, and he says this, he says, have this mind which is yours in Christ. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. I want to get a little bit technical here. 
Another translation, or a couple translations say it this way. They say to have this mindset, this attitude, this way of, of thinking. In the Greek, hold your horses, in the Greek it says this, there is actually no verb in the text. Meaning this, that there's no action. Right? We come into it and we think, okay, what do I have to do to think like Jesus? How many of you are already thinking that? What do I have to do, Ben, to think like Jesus, to not be so self ambitious, to not move from a place of uh, selfish conceit. And this is the Greek. It says, think this in yourself, which also in Christ. How many of you drive a Prius out there? Where are my Prius people? I will stand up here in my shame. I drive a Prius. Yes, you can take away my man card. There is this incredible thing in the Prius where it allows you to drive in two different modes, people. You can drive in an electric vehicle or EV mode, and you can go forever as long as you've got electricity. And then you can drive in a gasoline mode. This is the thing that I've discovered with the Prius is that when you go from one mode to the other, the engine either shuts on or turns off. But it goes on and off, over and over again. And within the very vehicle itself, it runs a different way. That when I'm running my vehicle on optimal performance, I'm in EV mode all the time. I'm a happy camper. I'm getting like 60 miles to the gallon. I'm loving it. But when I'm running in gasoline, I'm getting somewhere around like 15 to 20 miles per gallon. And what happens is this, in the Prius, it moves on again and off again based off of my speed, the type of, the type of drive that it has. For you and for me, if you are a follower of Jesus here today, you have two ways of thinking inside of yourself. There is the selfish ambition or conceit way. That's the flesh. That's the way that we're naturally used to running. And then there is have this mind which is yours in Christ. We don't actually have to do anything. We just have to engage the way that God has called us to think. You don't have to do anything because the mind of Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, is already in you. While this may seem impossible on the outset, it is possible with Christ. You see, what's happening here is this, is that in Philippians 2, what Paul does is he gives us a picture of how to turn on the engine to think like Christ. So what I want to do for the very short time that I've got left is this, is I want to give us three points as we look at Jesus and see how Jesus and his example causes us to have the mind of Christ. So are you ready? All right, point number one is this, Jesus' humility in heaven. Jesus' humility in heaven. Verse number six, the very beginning of this hymn, this is what it says. It says, here's Jesus' mind. Who, though, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This, this in the form of is the word in the Greek, morphe, meaning in the very nature. Uh, it's kind of like when, when you think of uh, X-Men, right? We think of mystique, right? Like morphing into one character or another. Uh, what this is actually saying is that that's actually another, another word, another Greek word. This is actually not saying the outside is changed. What God, hap- what God did here was he turned into, uh, he, though he was in the form of God, was that his very substance, the very essence of God was the same. Paul could have said he was God, but that would have actually been less of a powerful statement because in that day and age, Caesar was God, right? Other people on earth were God. 
Like you and I, we strive to be like God. But what Paul is saying here is that here's Jesus who though is in the form, the morphe, the essence, the very nature of God. He was God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What this is saying here tonight is this, is that Jesus was not a lesser God. He was not a sub-God. He was not a demigod. He was God. In the very sense that God is God, he was God. And he's not some person that worked in his perfection, that somehow God now accepts him and now he becomes a God. This isn't Buddhism. It says that he was God. Now, why is this important? Why am I belaboring the point here? The point is this, is that I want you to see the mindset of God. Though he was God, very God, in the form of God, he did not consider it a thing to be grasped. And yet, how often do you and I do the very opposite? Though I am not in the form of God, I consider it a thing to be grasped. I strive, and I work, and I grab to gain some glory. See, he was very God. Colossians 1, 16 through 18 says this, For in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Don't you realize that Jesus' humility, when we see the mindset of God, this is, this is your God. That he exhibits this humility even in heaven. That he humbles himself before the Father. That when he walked on the Sea of Galilee, he walked on the very lake that he created. God. It says that he created all things and all things were created for him. Meaning this, that you here tonight, you were created by God and you were created for God. That the emptiness that you feel inside your soul tonight is because it is not filled with God. That God is beckoning, calling like a loving father, saying, would you come to me? Because I created you for me. It says he came to his own creation and they did not accept him. God did not consider Equality with the Father, a thing to be grasped. You see, he could have, there in heaven, said, man, there's some jacked up people down there. You see that? Look at that TikTok. This is ridiculous, Father. There's some messed up people out there. But he doesn't say that. He didn't say, God, you, you want to save them, Father? You, you go be their daddy. You go to earth. You go save them. He doesn't say that. It doesn't even enter his mind. There's this humility that God would come down to save you and me. Don't you see God himself, his very life is not one of position, but it's one of posture. God takes on the form of a servant. Not one part at any time in Scripture, do we see Jesus with a scoreboard? 
do we see Jesus there with a record of wrongs and rights done to him? His entire life is a life of service. He never says, well, why am I serving them? They should serve me. I'm God, you know. I mean, literally, right there at the Last Supper, we see Jesus serving. It should have been the youngest that was there at the last moment, the last night of Jesus' life. The moment where he should have been thinking about, man, I need people to pray for me so I can make it through this trial. I need people to, 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 to support me. And all the while, he's there at the Last Supper, and the youngest one was called to serve, was called to wash the feet of the disciples. They're called to come up and, and start to wash the feet. And what happens is this. They begin to argue about who's the greatest. Oh, no, no, I deserve the spot at his left, and I deserve the spot at his right. And they begin to argue with each other. And what Jesus says, he comes up, and he, he picks up the basin, and he, and he picks up the water, and he begins to walk around. He begins to get down on his knees, and he begins to serve these people. His humanity that is about ready to nail him to a cross, he begins to wipe the feet of his people. This is your God. He says, I stand among you as one who serves. This is your God. All things were created by him and for him. There's someone here tonight that you need to know this. That God has come to serve you. That the God of the universe is not some ogre in the sky. But he's a God who would enter into humanity, put on flesh and bone, and come to earth for you. C.S. Lewis, he has this saying he talks about humility, and so often we think humility is kind of the, the humble brag, right? Like, you know, like, oh, Ben, nice shoes. Oh, no, please, no. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The most humble person that you will meet, you will not think that they're humble because all they will be doing is being interested in you. They'll be interested in how can they serve you? How can they love you? How can I be here to help you? And you'll leave that conversation thinking, this was the greatest conversation I've ever had because these people love me and they care for me. Humbleness is not sitting back and saying, oh, woe is me. Because think about it. When you're sitting there beating yourself up, who are you thinking about? You're thinking about yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Jesus, God, he comes to serve. He says, you too can have this mindset when you see my mindset. Jesus was humble in heaven. He was also humble when he came to earth. He was humble in his humanity. In verse number seven, it says that, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. I want to ask you a question here tonight. What in the world does that mean? He emptied himself. What is that talking about? You see, what the Bible is saying here is this, is that Jesus empties himself of what we would call his glory. His rightful glory. He empties this and puts on humanity. He puts on a dirt suit 
for you and for me. Flesh and blood. Divinity wrapped up in humanity. This is your God. And he comes to you. You and I, as we think about how do I not have this mindset, this motive to continue to think so selfishly. The problem is, is this, is that you and I, we, unlike Jesus, who empties himself of his glory, you and I, we have a glory sickness. We are desperate for glory. We cannot help but grasp for glory. Every conversation is about how can somebody bring glory to me. Every motive and action is about how can somebody serve me. Even for those that are serving with the wrong heart motive, it is about serving so others can say, man, what a great person. Man, aren't they so great? Look at all the little old ladies they're helping across the street. No, no, please. We can't help it. There's this glory sickness that lives inside of us. I want to ask you this question. What would life look like if for you and for me, we did not have a glory sickness? It would look like Jesus. It would look like the humility of our God. A God who would empty himself of all that was deserved and wrap himself up in this humanity to come to you and to me. We live in a culture and society that has been so shaped by Christian values that we don't even realize the significance of the word humility. That 2,000 years ago, when the word humility was used, it was actually used as an incredibly derogatory term. The only way that this word was used when it was referred to a slave, one who had been beaten down, marginalized, pushed to the bottom of society, It's almost like you can get the picture of someone stepping on someone's neck. This is humility, someone down in the dirt. But they were down in the dirt not because they chose to, but because they were forced to. And yet here is our God, literally and physically down in the dirt. We see him down in the dirt with a woman caught in adultery. There's someone here tonight that you think that your sin is so much worse than anybody else's. That somehow God is so far removed from you that there's no way that he could save you. And yet here is Jesus in every picture of the gospel, down in the dirt, face down, knees down. He's in the same posture as the woman caught in adultery. And yet here we stand so often as church people with rocks in our hands like the Pharisees, ready to stone, ready to judge. And yet here is Jesus in this moment, down in the dirt, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. I wonder tonight, do you have the mind of Jesus for the abused and the marginalized? I stand before you, he says, as one who serves. Jesus did not use his divine privilege to get But over and over again, he uses his divine privilege to give. And tonight is no different, friend. There's someone that's here tonight, and you think that you're too far gone. Jesus would humble himself in heaven, and he would humble himself in his humanity by emptying himself. He emptied himself of nearly everything, you know. It says he emptied himself of his majestic splendor in heaven. Those moments where 
all glory, all praise. They call it the Shekinah glory. Literally, this uh, incredible feeling of love and light that emanated from him. It says that he emptied himself of this. You and I can't even fathom that. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says if anyone were to come into his presence, that they would surely die based off of this. He empties himself of it. He empties himself of his rightful praise over and over again, being praised by his created beings. He empties himself of this. The only one that's truly worthy of our praise. We get little glimpses of this when we watch, you know, The Voice or American Idol. We get little glimpses of this when we see the Super Bowl and people cheer and they applaud athletic performance, incredible artistic performances. We sit there and we applaud and we say, wow, incredible, well done you. And yet here is God himself who deserves infinitely more praise. And it says that he empties himself of that praise. And he does it for you. For the joy set before him. You were that joy. I don't know if you know this or not, but you are God's inheritance. And it says in scripture that when we come into heaven and you put your faith and trust in him, that literally his inheritance, Jesus' inheritance, is a schmuck like me. Sometimes I can't even fathom that. That I'm your inheritance? Like, what a raw deal, Jesus. (laughs) And yet he says, for the joy set before him, he emptied himself of his relationship with the Father, this face-to-face encounter that had been there from all of eternity. Look what he says in John 17. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory you and I had before the whole world began. He empties himself of that for 33 years so that you might one day have that. You ever had that moment where maybe you've been out on a date and you just connect? That significant other that person, there's just this bond, this connection, this this incredible intimacy that's there as you share your life and they share their life and it's like, you you get done with that conversation, you're like, they they get me, right? (laughs) Have you been there? Man, they just get me. There's this intimacy that's there and we only get this small, tiny glimpse and yet Jesus, in this perfect relationship with the Father, he empties himself of that. He says, my best friend, my God, my Father, I'll empty myself of this so that others might have this relationship. He empties himself of his independent authority. John 5, 30, it says, by myself I can do nothing. Meaning this, that everything that Jesus did was not of his own volition, but of the volition of the Holy Spirit. And he gave up his independent authority. He says, I don't even know the time or the date when I'll return, only the Father does. You say, well, Ben, how did he do miracles? How did he do all these great things? It was through the Holy Spirit to show us, to show you and me that this is the life that he is calling us into. That it is a life of dependence. A life of servitude. He emptied himself of his unbridled power. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. Everything he did was guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Imagine that you are God, and you're telling your created beings that you will do greater things than me through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
What humility. I can't even let my little kid win at a game of checkers. <laughs> and here is God giving us the keys to the kingdom. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of his eternal riches. He says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. I don't know if you know this or not, but he borrowed everything. He borrowed a stable to be born in. He borrowed a boat to preach in. He borrowed a donkey to ride in on. And he borrowed a tomb to be buried in. Literally, the creator of the cosmos borrowed the very clothes off of his back. Because he was a God who gave. So often we think God is here to take. This is your God. He didn't even own a home. It says that this one time in John, John recalls this. He said they all each went to their own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why? Because Jesus didn't have a home. He emptied himself for you. You see, friend, tonight Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows the pain that you feel. He knows the weight that you're carrying. Because he carried it on the cross. He carried it in his life of humility. He knows what someone has done to you. He knows. He knows those times where you've loved and you've not been loved back. He knows. I came to tell someone here tonight that he knows all those things that you think have disqualified you. He knows. And he walked that road for you. He knows. And I know the weight is hard to carry. And I know this life has beaten you down. But he knows. That's why he is the great high priest. He, he is the one who is interceding right now, this very moment. There are people right here, right now, that are praying for you in this moment. God has had me up since 2.30 this morning praying for you. And Jesus himself is interceding on behalf because he knows what you're going through. He knows the pain that you're in. He knows the unmet expectations that you feel. He knows. He knows. And he comes to give his very life to you. He knows. You see, for 2,000 years, people have stumbled over this. They've stumbled over the humility of Jesus. He so humbled himself, God so humbled himself that people actually thought that he was a man. In fact, it says this in the passage of scripture. It said that one time people picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus, he asks the question, he says, why, why do you seek to kill me? I literally just healed this blind man over here and yet you pick up stones to kill me. And they say this, because they too believe that he was just a man. They say, because you being a mere man say you are equal with God. He so humbled himself as God that we could not tell the difference when we walked right up to him. Why? Is it because he was humble bragging? 
No, it was because he was so obsessed with you. This is our God. I want to ask you a question tonight if you are a follower of Jesus. Do you have this mindset of God? Are you that type of servant? Do you serve or do you just do it when it's convenient? Do you just love when it benefits you? Or you just do it when it fits into your schedule? The very God of the universe picked up a basin and a towel and he said, these feet are dirty and I don't care who is here, I have come to serve. comes to serve. My last point is this, that Jesus was not just humble in heaven. He was not just humble in his humanity. He was humble in his very death. It says that in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. May I suggest that the greatest mark of humility is the mark of obedience no matter how difficult. And there's somebody here tonight that God is calling you to take a step of faith and you're scared. Can I tell you this? That Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. That there in Gethsemane rested the greatest moment in human history when Jesus, his will, would butt up against the will of the Father. And three times he asks his disciples, his very friends, he says, pray for me because I'm struggling. There's some of you here tonight and you are struggling. And you're asking somebody, pray for me because I don't know what to do. Jesus is there in that moment. He says, pray for me. Peter, pray for me. John, pray for me. James, pray for me. I need your prayers because the fate of the whole world, the fate of humanity rests on this decision and I don't want to do it. And he comes back to see his friends asleep, who just moments later would abandon him, would sell him for pieces of silver, would run away in his greatest moment of need. And in this moment, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, where grapes were crushed to turn into wine, the Son of God was crushed by the wrath of the Father for you and for me. And he didn't run from it. He didn't hide from it. He said, God, I don't want to do this, but not my will, your will be done, Father. Not my will, but your will. And yet so often I stand before God and I say the very opposite. Not your will, God, but my will be done. I know you've called me to be obedient, but I'm going to do it my way. I know you've called me to reach out, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do it my way. And yet here is God in this moment of crushing And he says, not my will, but yours be done. The one who never knew sin would become sin for you and for me. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. That your sin, my sin, was enough to put Jesus on the cross. That if it was just me and it was just you, Jesus would still humble himself. And be crushed by the weight of my sin and your sin to bring me into his family. He so loves you. 
He so humbled himself. What is humility? What is thinking like Jesus? And it doesn't end there, friends. Not only did he humble himself to the point of death, it's that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, we throw that out there. We wear that as jewelry, necklaces. But in this day and age, the cross was not something that was ornamental. The cross was this torture device. We think that that cross, you know, that was just somewhere far, far away. I don't know if you know this. Jesus could have been killed anyway. He could have humbled himself just to the point of death. But not the shame of death on a cross. He could have humbled himself to a quick death. He could have been beheaded like Paul. He could have been hung like Judas. He could have been stoned like Stephen. Yet his humility knew no bounds. His love knew no ends to bring you into his family. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this cross was not off in some faraway land. It was literally off the main boulevard. If Jesus were crucified right here in Springfield, he would be right there at 65 in Springfield, just a few feet off the road, naked, beaten, to the point that people didn't know if he was a human being or an animal. Jews, as they walked by, they would look at Jesus and they would say, this man is accursed. Because it says, anyone that died on this tree, on this piece of wood, was accursed by God. And yes, friends, he was accursed for you and for me. Many people would walk by, they would spit on him. Look at this man. Look at this shame. People would urinate on him. And God humbles himself to be abused and maligned by the very ones that he created. He so loves you. And yet somehow you think that your sin is going to separate you. Friends, Jesus took care of sin on the cross once and for all. He so loves you. And he would humble himself to the point of death even death on a cross. You see, humility is saying yes to God, even when it's the last thing in the world that you want to do. But you know that it's what's God, what God is calling you to. And therefore, God is highly exalted and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the name that is above every name? It's not a trick question. It's Jesus. It says that one day, Jesus will be called Lord. One day. Friends, I pray that that day is today for you. 
that you would see Jesus for who he is. That he is a God that so loves you that he would endure this on the cross for you. That he so loved me that he would do this. But I want to speak to somebody else out here today. You haven't made that decision. It says that one day everyone will. And I'm not here to scare you. I just want to let you know this, that today is your day. That the God of the universe is calling and beckoning you. Not out of force, but to see the goodness of this God. When I was 26 years of age, I was a captain in the army and I was trying to figure out what I was doing with my life. God, what do you want me to do? I just felt this emptiness and this loneliness of achieving what I thought would bring success only to find that I was such a miserable man. Riddled with guilt and shame, feeling empty and alone. And one day somebody invited me to see this story I began to read this in my office there at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Who though was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself for me. And I just remember sitting there and I was just newly married and was trying so hard to be a good husband, I just couldn't do it. I don't know if you ever felt that way. You're trying really, really hard, trying to follow the rules and you just can't do it, right? You ever found yourself, man, I'm gonna break this addiction. That Ben and Jerry's, ah. I'm going to break this addiction. You just, you just can't seem to do it. And I made this decision, and there was nothing earth-shattering. The, the heavens didn't part. The trumpet didn't sound. It was just this decision that I made. I said, God, I, I see who you are, and I want to follow you. So being a type A person, I come home that evening. My wife, if you know my wife, she's we're exact opposite. She's by like completely different she's a type b person and i'm like ocd i've got to have the house clean right it's got to be immaculate all the dishes have to be put away and like the house is super clean but there's a couple dishes in the sink and i i don't know how many of you out there are, are married or you, you got roommates but you come back in and i'm i'm ticked off right i'm like why aren't the dishes put away right any type a, a people out there right like come on now you got your ocd kicking in you can't help yourself why aren't they put away so I begin to walk over there to the dishes, just make this decision to follow Jesus. And what do I decide to do? I start to angry wash, I start to guilt wash. You ever done that? You're over there washing, making it look like you're trying to help them, but you're really trying to guilt them into it. Like, look what I'm doing over here. I'm cleaning these dishes for you. But my wife is completely oblivious, right? She's like, oh, thanks, baby. Inside, I'm burning up on the inside. Like, oh, I can't believe this. Doing these dishes, you're home all day, it's ridiculous. As I'm sitting there doing these dishes, the very first time in my life, the Holy Spirit drops this verse into my heart. This is what the mind of Jesus is. Ben, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others more significant than yourself. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is yours today, Christian. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though is in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he puts on this dirt suit, he puts on this humanity, and he becomes obedient to the point of death. Death been for you, 
And as I'm sitting there washing these dishes for the very first time in my life, I recognize what it was like to have the mind of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, oh, I see, Ben. I can die on the cross for you, but you can't do dishes for your wife. I could try over and over and over again to be the best husband I could possibly be, but it would never be enough without the mindset of Jesus. From that moment forward, I recognized how awful and sinful I was, and yet how good and loving my God was to me. I said, God, I can't do this on my own. I need this mindset, which is yours. And I gave my life over to Jesus. I said, Jesus, I don't know how to do this. I give my life to you. I serve because I've been served by the greatest among me. There's a person out here right now, and you're hearing this story, and God is speaking to you. I want you to hear this, that God loves you in all of your mess. He loves you right now, and he wants nothing more than to bring you into his family. Not because you are good, not because you work hard, but because you know a God that loves you. It changed my entire life. Right now, if you'd say, Ben, I want to know that. I, I want that relationship with every head bowed and every eye closed. Mm-hmm.